This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Lovecraft's Vermont. Fall television. Music and RPGs. And Emersonian transcendentalism. This episode is brought to you by Engine Publishing and Odyssey, the complete Game Master's Guide to Campaign Management. It's the fourth system-neutral book for GMs from any award winner, Engine Publishing. Written by award-winning authors Phil Vecchione and Walt Sikonowski, Odyssey is jam-packed with in-depth advice on starting, managing, and ending campaigns, although campaigns often just sort of end themselves. I guess Odyssey would help you do it when you want it to as opposed to just at random. Right. It doesn't need a chapter on ending your campaign because you've been hit by a meteor, because after that, you, you know, you have other worries, right. I suppose. Yeah. Uh, but whether you're an old hand or new to game mastering, you'll find a wealth of tips and techniques you can put to immediate use in Odyssey. A guide to starting a new campaign from coming up with the initial concept, which can be as simple as listening to Ken and Robin talk about stuff, to running a smooth first session, which is slightly less simple. Uh, tips on structuring stories handling problem players, and making your campaign thrive. Advice on actively managing every element of your campaign, stories, characters, players, risk, and change, while avoiding the common pitfalls. Examples of how every aspect of campaign management looks when handled well or badly. <laughs> it's it's important to have other examples of how to handle a campaign badly, I guess. that's. Uh... <laughs> yes, we, we could all imagine the horror stories. Um, and also how to end campaigns on a high note, including what to avoid, for example, being hit by a meteor. We're giving Cartas listeners a special discount on Odyssey, $5 off in the Engine Publishing Store using code CARTAS20. Good through November 2013 on enginepublishing.com. The smell of hash browns and the roar of 18-wheeler suggests that we are once again issuing another travel advisory, but this time it's a road trip travel advisory, specifically a road trip undertaken by one Mr. Kenneth Height to, if not the heart of Lovecraft Country, to its periphery. Ken, where were you at and why was it Lovecrafty? I was at uh, New England visiting my uh, sister who lives in New Hampshire. And when I go and visit my sister, it is uh, generally an excellent idea to take advantage of her propinquity and head out into the surrounding Lovecraft country. Lovecraft left New Hampshire pretty much alone, but New England is all jambledy up close together. So last time I went out there, I drove down to Salem, Massachusetts and to uh, Boston. And this time I went out to the Lovecraftian stretch of Vermont, the part of uh, Vermont where Lovecraft uh, stayed in 1927, and to Marblehead, a city that he fell in love with on coastal Massachusetts and visited over and over and over between uh, 1922 and uh, 1926. So what did Lovecraft see when he went to Marblehead? When he went to Marblehead, what he saw was pretty much what I saw, although I suspect with less uh, pastel-colored paint. He saw a remarkably well-preserved uh, fishing town from it you know, with buildings going back to the you know late 17th century and a huge number of buildings from his beloved 18th century and when you sort of stand up there on what they call the old burial hill it's sort of the high point of uh marblehead uh, certainly uh, one of the high points aesthetically of marblehead and also physically so you can look down over the gambrel roofs and pointy colonial structures. And when it's a writer of weird tales, you could not ask for a better name for a place than Old Burial Hill. Old Burial Hill. And he um, and he, he gazed down and he saw this uh, city sort of spread out before him in sort of this, uh, this stretch of Augustan New England that he had tried to reach uh, metaphysically and uh, by dint of refusing to admit that uh, the Americans won the revolution and for a number of other b mental bizarreries and saw Marblehead and had what he uh, described in his letters to virtually all of his correspondents at that time as sort of the defining aesthetic moment of his life. He, he had a sudden onrush of consciousness uh, perceiving 
all space and time, of course, demarcated by 18th century uh, Georgian architecture, which is the way that Lovecraft demarcated things. And it was such an ecstatic response that he immediately wrote a horror story in which Marblehead, as Kingsport, is uh, burrowed under by a hideous worm cult, because that is how Lovecraft dealt with uh, all great emotion, especially emotions of joy and delight, by sublimating them and transforming them into sheer terror. As one does when one is a horror writer, you look for things that impact you, not necessarily in a frightening way at first, and find ways to turn them on their head, because one of the main points of horror is to tell you that the universe is out to get you, and so one way that is especially effective uh, then and now is to look at things that you normally associate with happiness and profundity and see if you can turn them on their heads and twist them. So uh, how Kingsporty did Marblehead strike you as? Parts of Marblehead struck me as, as quite Kingsporty. We were there on an autumn day, which is always a good day to think of things being Kingsporty. And thanks to the good work of uh, Donovan Lux, uh, I had uh, prepared a, a sort of a walking tour through Marblehead to look at places that Lovecraft uh, would have seen and uh, known about, such as uh, the, pre the aforementioned Old Burial Hill and various uh, churches, which Lux believed might or might not have been the models for the the, the, the cult church of, of the Green Flame in Kingsport in the festival, and a number of other generally colonial structures with one or another lurid uh, rumor attached to them. There's a house built by a wizard, which was very interesting, although Lovecraft does not mention that specific wizard in his uh, in Kingsport. He puts uh, the... Um, his, his Kingsport wizards are either down in uh, what's called the Pirate House or is or up on a uh, building on a non-existent crag, which he borrowed from uh, Cape Ann and Gloucester and then put on, uh, sort of looming over uh, Marblehead, which uh, nothing actually looms over. Right, because as a writer, uh, if you need a crag, you uh, put one in. You put in uh, a crag. Otherwise, you would just call it Marblehead and not call it Kingsport. Right. Yeah. The, the same sort of objection can be made. Uh, Lux spends a good amount of time trying to decide which of the churches in Marblehead was the, 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 the church in the festival and uh, rejects uh, St. Michael's Episcopal Church, which is the favorite uh, location of the early uh, Lovecraft scholar Philip Schreffler, who wrote uh, the H.P. Lovecraft Companion way back in the day. Um, he says that that can't be it because there's no steeple there, and the Lovecraft Church, of course, has a steeple, and then goes to plump for another church, which, when Lovecraft visited in 1922, had been burned down for 12 years and replaced by an entirely different building. And I'm not going to uh, say Donovan Lux doesn't know his Lovecraftian locations, because he very absolutely does, but it doesn't seem much harder to put a steeple on an existing church than reconstruct a pre-existing church where there was at that time a hospital. So I think that um, a great deal of Lovecraft's trip through Marblehead must have been spent in that sort of, you know, like, like you suggest, the auctorial recombination of details to create the aesthetic impression that he wanted, as well as absorbing the aesthetic details. Because for Lovecraft, just the ability, and, and for me, the ability to turn around and see buildings that were built in the 1680s, built in the 1720s, uh, built in the 1740s. When you started seeing buildings that were post-revolutionary, you'd see a building from 1790 and say, ha, that thing. You find yourself in, in, in the same Lovecraftian space that he did, in which architecture is, is, is primal, in which the, the sense impressions that you're getting are exactly along the lines of, of a Lovecraft character. The, the, in love, certainly, if you have any architectural sensitivity, you, you will fall in love with Marblehead, and you'll, and you'll uh, be very excited to see how uh, its architecture gets reused and detourned by Lovecraft throughout his career. The whole question of the authenticity of particular locations, I think, really goes to the huge difference between the critic and the practicing writer of fiction, because we are all allowed to make up as many steeples as we want or need. <laughs> uh, and it's uh, no big whoop. And I'm sure he, whatever building he was thinking of, he might well have been thinking of elements of this building he'd heard of, plus this other building, plus he needed a steeple. It's something you don't even give a second thought to. And it's kind of comical to think that there's, uh, you know, poor other people coming along decades later are stuck having to argue uh, which is which, when, you know, clearly it's a uh, work of fiction. So how else has uh, Kingsport 
featured in the Lovecraftian works of writers other than Lovecraft? Has anyone really explored that location to a greater extent later on? I don't think that anyone has made Kingsport sort of their home turf in the way that uh, people have written uh, Arkham stories or tried to build out Arkham. Um, Kingsport does actually show up a good bit in Gene Wolfe's uh, Lovecraftian novel, An Evil Guest, but mostly as a reference and seldom as a location. Although I think that when he, I, I believe there's one or two chapters set in Kingsport and it is sort of a touristy New England town. I think that he is enjoying both the literary tourism of putting a scene in Kingsport and the uh, more immediate tourism of saying that the town is sort of, uh, you know, full of coffee shops and, and uh, arts galleries and whatnot, which, of course, Marblehead very much is. It, it, it exists on the back of, of architectural tourism, though not necessarily Lovecraftian architectural tourism. Right. It would be a fun juxtaposition to play with is the idea that Lovecraft's Marblehead, or rather Kingsport, I guess, was this gothic place, but now it has joined the modern world and seems mundane on the surface. And, you know, since you can get a soy latte there, it no longer seems as outwardly gothic on the surface as then it would turn out to be when you uh, play with it and go back to the themes and images of the uh, mythos. But write what uh, you know after visiting it about the place in the modern world, and then you get that juxtaposition of familiar detail, all too familiar, all too mundane detail, with what would then be your horror. Yeah. Speaking of delightful juxtapositions, another location that Schreffler identifies that Lux questions is something that I think I mentioned earlier called the Pirate's Hideout or the Pirate House, where town tradition says a pirate lived for a great long time, and uh, Schreffler says that this is the house of the terrible old man, who was, of course, once upon a time a pirate in Kingsport. And Lux points out that Lovecraft wrote The Terrible Old Man two years before he went to Marblehead, and uh, so therefore could not actually have based The Terrible Old Man House on the pirate house, although my lovely wife Sheila says that she could imagine seeing children peeping in the windows of the pirate house because it seemed to her to be a very peep-worthy uh, structure. So that would be thrown into the balance on Schreffler's side. Also in the balance on Schreffler's side is that if the pirate house is The Terrible Old Man's house, it means that next door to the terrible old man lived the vice president of the United States, Elbridge Jerry, father of the gerrymander and signer of the declaration. And if that is not a juxtaposition worth juxtaposing in some note of historical horror or historical irony, I, I don't recognize them when they come up anymore. So how would tentacles and gerrymandering go together? Well, I think that you can say that either the the districts are, um, uh, are carved in non-Euclidean geometries intended to increase the witch uh, representation, or possibly just to drive the good electors of Massachusetts mad. Or you can have some sort of crisis during the War of 1812 in which Elbridge Jerry has to go next door and whisper long in, into the night with the terrible old man and certain bargains are made. And then, you know, some uh, bizarre activity in the War of 1812 can be retroactively explained by that. So uh, what of the Vermont leg of your journey? The Vermont leg of my journey was uh, mostly to the areas where Lovecraft stayed in Vermont, as opposed to the areas that he wrote about. He went to basically to West Brattleboro. It's a little town named Guilford is where he actually stayed. But Guilford is just sort of down the well, down a series of increasingly ridiculous, narrow, and closed-in forested roads from Brattleboro. Uh, Brattleboro now, I don't know what it was like then, but now it is very much a sort of a college town without the college. It's on the fringes of the Massachusetts money, uh, so people drive up there to antique or to see um, sort of local color and enjoy themselves in that way. So it has that sort of uh, resort and counterculture vibe going on with it that I suspect it had neither of when Lovecraft was there in 1927. So is this area, has it become uh, very much uh, modernized into being, you know, big box, uh, corporate, anonymous American sprawl, or uh, does it still retain its uh, flavor and, and Lovecraftian uh, elements? One of the things that Lovecraft loved about Vermont was that it was a place for him to get away from the railroads and billboards that were encroaching on 
uh, New England in, you know, Providence where he, uh, lived in Boston and Salem and places like that where he had visited, uh, repeatedly. When he got to Brattleboro, he was, he re- announced himself to be charmed and delighted by the rustic accents of the locals. At which point the locals all burst out laughing and said that if he really wanted to hear rustic accents, he should hear people who in Vermont consider Brattleboroers to be uh, townies and represent that same urban sprawl <laughs> that Lovecraft was there trying to escape. And uh, he, of course, being Lovecraft, had the sort of uh, sense of uh, of humor to put that into his letters to other people, talking about how he'd been served by Vermonters. But I, I think um, when you go out to Brattleboro, it's still very much a, a, a character of, of locality. I mean, not only can you sort of sense the local geography looming up around you in the way that Lovecraft did, but you also, it, it's it's not a lot of chain stores. There may have been a couple of Starbuckses, but most of the restaurants were, were you know, like I say, geared towards the Massachusetts tourist trade, not necessarily towards uh, some non-existent large local industry. They, they, they have a, a strongly local character to the shops on Main Street. It's all uh, small bookstores and um, independent record stores and things like that. It, it, like I say, it has a very college town vibe and much less a, a big box. I don't know if there's um, even a Walmart in the state of uh, Vermont. Uh, I, I suppose there must be, you know, some sort of, uh, of large retail, but I would be willing to bet it's closer to Burlington. But again, New England is so small that if you really want that, I'm sure you can just drive an hour somewhere and, and get to it in Massachusetts or New York. So if you were to set a horror scenario or piece of fiction in the area of Vermont you went to, what uh, bits of inspiration did you find that uh, Lovecraft might have missed? Well, interestingly, um, I think that the inspiration that I most immediately got was trying to find things Lovecraft found, uh, such as the house where he stayed in Guilford. I drove up and down uh, Lee Road in Guilford probably three or four times before <laughs> Sheila was able to pry my um, uh, tires away and send me off to a, a local graveyard to touch things Lovecraft would have touched. But um, <laughs> I was looking for uh, that house, which uh, when he went to Vermont, the second growth forests were not uh, were not back up against the road the way that they are now. And so Lee Road in his time would have had little stands of trees here and there. Probably some of the giant trees that I saw were, were still there, but uh, not the sort of just slammed up against the, 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 the roadway uh, uh, conifers the way that they have now. And so I was not able to find that house. I was able to find the house of Arthur Goodenough, where he uh, visited for an afternoon to talk uh, literature and art with the Vermont arts community. And I was able to find the Mather graveyard where the Akeleys are all buried from the Whisper in Darkness, but I wasn't able to find a graveyard also on Lee Road that Lovecraft would have known about. And that was the sort of thing where, in theory, I had, you know, my Google map, I had my, you know, everything short of a GPS coordinate for this graveyard. And I went up and down Lee Road, and between the the nature of the trees and the fact that the road curves around, you have, you know, maybe 40 yards of visibility in any direction. You, you, it, it's not there. It can't be found. And the notion of, of some Delta Green special ops team being sent into uh, the Lee Road graveyard to put down something that Lovecraft accidentally called up or, or saw being called up and, you know, spending the first 45 minutes of, uh, you know, a, a dwindling ritual window stumbling around the woods trying to find the thing. It, it's sort of Blair Witch in miniature, I guess. And I, I, I sort of uh, twigged to the notion of that same Blair Witch but not as a feeling of uh, personal isolation, but as a feeling that the geography was actually plotting against you, which as you drive down these uh, barely signposted roads in the back of Vermont, you certainly get that sense. You've got that cliched thing now in horror fiction where the characters in the first act have to discover that they are getting no cell phone reception. But uh, a way to turn that on his head would be to just have a scenario or a story where the characters still get signals and they still have their gps but their gps is showing them something that's completely different than what they're seeing around them suggesting that they have stepped through some sort of a doorway to a another reality and uh, they can then use their cell phones all they want and they can contact all of the people back in the uh, real world that they know but those people uh, can say okay we'll come and get you well we're right here where you said we need us <laughs> yeah. where, where are you where are you <laughs> yeah I um yeah the, the, that notion of of knowing where you are but not being where you know you are is it, it it's uh 
it's fairly fun uh, when your wife is with you and it's in the middle of the afternoon and you're in a, in a rented uh, Volkswagen and you can you know just turn around and give up and go back and uh, hit a yarn store in Brattleboro. You, you haven't met a, a uh, rustic sentinel who says, we don't like people from the outside around here uh, previously to that. No, uh, I, I did, in fact, run into um, a, a lesbian organic farmer who uh, was happy to sell us some lovely and very tasty tomatoes and say that she was not um, uh, from around these parts and didn't know any of the locations that we were trying to find. So we had the opposite. We had, instead of the uh, the creepy sentinel, we had the um, uh, postmodern sentinel where uh, she only signifies her own location and nothing else. Uh, well, uh, speaking of locations, I believe that we've located ourselves at the end of this segment, and it's time to move on to the next one. The flickering of selenium and the crackling of the orthicon tube tells us that we have entered the blue-lit confines of the television hut. And in the television hut, we figured we might talk about some of the geek-friendly new shows on the fall TV schedule. And Robin, you and I have both seen some of those shows indeed, so why don't you start us out? So I thought the first one we would talk about is Sleepy Hollow, uh, which, like a lot of episodic television with a case-of-the-week structure, is actually very useful for uh, gaming purposes if you want to kind of look at that structure and look for ways to plunder it in your ongoing series of adventures that you're, in uh, this case, modern-day supernatural investigators look into. And Sleepy Hollow, I think, is interesting, first of all, because the things that are fun about it are in some way sort of tangential to its construction, that basically it is a show that knows how silly it is and plays it straight in an extremely knowing, silly way, that it's about tone and momentum and, in fact, is... Uh, I am not wouldn't say that it's not trying to be good, but it's not trying to be sophisticated or meet jaded taste. It's trying to be over the top in a way that relies on the performances of the lead actors and is uh, charming and fun and uh, does not attempt to stand up to any degree of analysis and as such is a lot like a lot of role-playing sessions yeah, right that as long as you don't ask uh, larger questions every decision in the instant can be justified even if none of them in the larger sense can be right and i think a lot of the enjoyment of the show is down to the performance of tom meisen as the badass ichabod crane character who's even more of a badass than the uh, Johnny Depp Ichabod Crane. And, uh, <laughs> Johnny Depp, uh, when he was filming uh, the movie, described his character as Ichabod Crane girl detective. <laughs> yes. And this is uh, Ichabod Crane, uh, super manly detective. Exactly. Uh, but he the, fought for George Washington. Yes. And so the deli- you know, his delivery, which is a very, very serious delivery, a very, very serious, uh, silly dialogue, I think really makes the show work and gives it that quality of uh, humor that it needs uh, without being, you know, winkingly funny. There's a really interesting line that's being uh, danced on there. But I think the his performance and his chemistry with Nicole Bihari, who plays the modern-day uh, sheriff's deputy who they team up with sort of instantly, and uh, I think we're retroactively about to get a bunch of explanation of why that makes sense, but mm-hmm. uh, that's still in, in upcoming episodes. Uh, but they uh, strike up an oddly acceptable uh, double team right away. And uh, another bit of the fun of it is just the way that it plays with the mythology of the American Revolution, which is something that is uh, not often mucked around with. The Western is much has gotten a lot more play in uh, pop culture depictions than uh, the Revolutionary War, and so you've got a lot more to play with. And they do slick things like conflate the Headless Horseman with the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. He's a death. So they're playing with the mythology in a fun way. Yeah, one of the, I mean, when I was watching the, the pilot as sort of a, is this going to be something that is worth the amount of time that it's going to take to watch it? Because obviously with uh, television being the way it is now, you know, even, you know, 44 minutes of, of silliness has got to be justified in some sense. It's got to be quality uh, silliness. Right. It's got to be quality silliness. And 
uh, once they uh, start talking about uh, George Washington surveying uh, Sleepy Hollow using his Freemasonic powers, I was sort of in for at least the first part of the ride. And then you mentioned Tom Meisen's performance, but I think that uh, Nicole Bahari should get at least as much credit because playing the straight man is, if anything, harder in these sorts of bits. I mean, to, to paraphrase Ginger Rogers, she has to do everything uh, Tom Meisen does, only backwards and with a straight face. And so the the, the scully half of, of those uh, teams is always just as crucial as the, the Mulder half. And uh, she is a terrific character. She does a terrific job. And Orlando Jones, as the enigmatic uh, uh, police captain, is another key element there. Skinner, if you will, the guy who is half the time giving them a little under-the-counter encouragement and half the time saying, you can't be going chasing spooks. You don't know what's going on. <laughs> you know, and um, uh, as, a, as a comic uh, actor, it's always great to see a comic actor get to play sort of a heavy character because I think that that's something that is a natural extension of comic acting ability and is almost never... Uh, taken advantage of by casting directors. It's also really cool to see two African-American actors in the same show uh, in a small town setting. And that's, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, not the usual arrangement. Not at all. Given the the, the normal way uh, that uh, these things go, we are are lucky to see not just African-American characters, but uh, recognizably human and normal African-American characters, as opposed to being sort of uh, signposted and, and, and backpatted about. It's 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 good to see there be, that there's enough African American characters that they can be in conflict with each other as a uh, organic part of the story. It, it's just a terrific um, little uh, triad that they've got going on there, and I expect that as they sort of build it out further, I'm, I've I enjoyed seeing you know some of the you know the, the notion that if you're dead on the show, that may or may not mean that you're out. Uh, Clancy Brown is is coming back apparently in the occasional uh, uh, post mortem ghost uh, appearance and. Uh, John Cho, although he dies in the pilot, is still wandering around as the tool of the headless horseman, which is great fun. So I think that uh, I think there's all manner of of of, uh, of uh, story possibility fizzing up, and they've already been renewed for a whole second season. So hopefully they will find plenty of uh, local American mystery of the week type stuff. To... Is it for a second season, or is just the current season been? I think I read that they, that they got a second season, but wow. I, their their full season has certainly been signed uh, signed up for. Maybe I'm wrong. From a role playing point of view, you can certainly see things being set up. Like in in one episode, they explain that he has an eidetic memory, which very much sounds like someone reading off their character sheet, and uh, uh, it actually gets picked up again and used in more than one episode. They get extra points for that. Uh, we saw. Uh, in what, as we record this, is the most uh, recent episode, uh, him use his uh, linguistics ability. And that brings to mind an interesting thing about the show, which is that it seems to be, you know, if this was a game, it would be run by a GM who's not allowed to look at Wikipedia, Mm -hmm. uh, is not a history major, and none of the other history majors, possibly everyone else in the group, is a history major, and their test is they're not allowed to complain when history gets mythologized in crazy ways. Yes, so. the, <laughs> the, the, the history majors involved in uh, the game, and certainly if there are any involved in the show, those in the show have made the uh, conscious decision to not uh, let their knowledge get in the way of their fun, which I think is a crucial example that all of us should uh, follow in our gaming. So you've got, uh, you know, witch trials going on essentially uh, simultaneously with the American Revolution. And uh, we also discovered that the uh, members of the Lost Roanoke colony uh, spoke Chaucerian English. Yeah, well, you know, knew? who knew? <laughs> That's why they were selected. Walter Raleigh's like, you guys just don't fit in around here. We're going to send <laughs> you to North Carolina and see how that works out. Yeah, I think it's a, a fun exercise and I think is instructive in the way that they're, you know, not letting the research get in the way of a good time. And that could be a, a really fun challenge to run for your group of uh, history majors, a, mm-hmm. a, a game that plays as uh, fast and loose with uh, history as this show does. One of, that's, that's one of the things that I, I try to sort of uh, look at, because if you look at, for example, the way that uh, we have depicted in the West, have depicted Japan or India or the mysterious East, it's with that same sort of slapdash attitude towards research and realism. And I think that seeing it turned around and applied to our own history and our own mythology, you know, sauce for the goose is good for the gander. And I think it, like the same reason that we do it to Japan, it's more fun to ignore, you know, the difference between Kamakura and Edo period. It's more fun to have samurais and ninjas all running around and, 
and um, uh, fighting giant crabs during the Mongol invasion or whatever. Speaking of taking on a complex mythology, uh, Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is another big uh, nerdtastic project that I think people might be interested in our point of view on. And this, again, is a procedural show. It's got a very much uh, case-of-the-week structure, and its premise, uh, as it has unfolded, has been very much that it is basically Mission Impossible set in the Marvel Universe, or the movie version, uh, now the movie-slash-TV version of the Marvel Universe, which is fitting on one hand because that's what the S.H.I.E.L.D. comic in the 60s was, was Mission Impossible set in the Marvel Universe. It was Stan Lee's response to the TV spy craze. And so it is uh, interesting to see how that plays out, although I think we both are a little less enthusiastic about its silliness than the silliness of Sleepy Hollow. Well, that's because its silliness is not so much silliness. I have no real objection to silliness. What I object to is the laziness. The, 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 the notion that you have uh, $12 million and the Marvel Universe to play with, and so far there has been, uh, of the four episodes, I think we've had one scene where there was any tension about the fate of any character. Still, uh, you know, four episodes in, we've, you know, barely defined any of the characters as human beings. We literally have two characters who might as well be named Techno and Babel. It's so, uh, it's such lazy writing. And we've got a very, very standard, very, very boring set of, you know, indifferentiable white guys wandering around through the Marvel Universe, not actually even engaging with the actual Marvel Universe so much as the occasional, uh, uh, word tossed off from the, uh, movies to remind us that yes, the Avengers exists. But they haven't met, you know, they, they, they've sort of maybe met Graviton and, you know, Nick Fury shows up at the tail end of one episode to say, if he doesn't get this team together, there's going to be hell to pay and like that. And it, it just it, the most ridiculous thing. I mean, uh, Samuel L. Jackson, you know, provably doesn't care what lines he has to recite, but even that must have, you know, left a mark on him. Very much with the Marvel continuity is not so much as an issue as the other thing that you pointed to, which is that the characters are not sharply drawn as iconic heroes. That Clark Gregg continues to really score just because he's great at stylized dialogue. He came mm -hmm. up doing Mammoth, and uh, in the uh, Whedon Much Ado About Nothing, he demonstrated that that transfers to Shakespearean iambic pentameter, and it certainly transfers to uh, Whedon-esque snappy dialogue, and so he's really registering. But he's really his character, Coulson, is the only one that has really been given an iconic value, and even that sort of has a time clock on it because he's the hero who works by bringing the other heroes together and forging them into a team. And so so far, the only identification of all of the other characters is not who they are on sort of an iconic level, what their ethos is, but simply why they are not ready to be members of a team. And that's yeah. all that they've been defined as. So the uh, the hacker girl might not be ready to be on the team because she might be double dealing with her WikiLeaks buddies. And, uh, you know, the uh, guy who's used to being a solo operative doesn't want to be in a team. And the person who's used to being a badass doesn't want to be a badass anymore, except they seem to have already resolved that really early on. And Well, sort of, sort of not. I mean, it's it's one of those things where they resolve it and then they come back and treat it like it wasn't resolved. It's like a sitcom where they've all hugged and learned the meaning of the homeless until next Thanksgiving when they have to do it all over again. Right. And, and the hugging and learning, I think, points to another uh, issue I have with the show, which is just that the through line of each show is made so explicit and nailed ah. down so obviously as, you know, here's the emotional problem of the week that we have to resolve. So let's talk about it at the top of the show and talk about it in the middle of the show. And then at the end, let's have a dialogue scene where we expel out how the conflict has been resolved. And so things that should be in the subtext um, are, you know, in the text and uh, underlined and in, in highlighter. Uh, so it is kind of frustrating on that level that because uh, when they get to the point where it's no longer credible for the team not to be a team anymore, well, then where are they going to go with that? Yeah, right? they're, they're, and, they, and again, they need to start stepping up the, the quality of their job, uh, uh, not just the quality of the writing and not just the quality of the, of the, of the emotional content of the, of the story, but the actual 
quality of the, of the bad guys. I mean, they're, they're only in the most recent episode uh, have they even faced anything that might be considered a sort of standard shield mission. And all the rest of them could probably have been dealt with by Navy SEALs with no real problem. This, there's just no excuse for the uh for the, the sort of the sloppiness of, of of that construction given that the whole point of the show is as you say mission impossible in the marvel universe and it's the in the marvel universe half of it that they are inexplicably neglecting and if they were neglecting it in favor of as you suggest building out the characters and demonstrating their humanity before they are contrasted with superhumanity that would be one thing but all they're doing is just going through a nigh endless getting the team together sequence which is virtually uh, the most boring thing you can do with episodic television, short of, you know, them all reminiscing over a game of darts or something. From an analytical perspective, in terms of, you know, the way movies are are intertwining with nerd mythologies, it is going to be sort of interesting to watch how they use this series to basically, you know, through the movies, they have been deliberately building a continuity, so it feels like the early days of Marvel Comics when it was it was weird and cool and surprising that the an element would be picked up in one issue that had been established in a previous issue and, and different comic books would intertwine and now they're very much trying to make a universe out of this and they're going to use the TV show to do that so it'll be interesting for example to see as uh, it gets to the release of the Thor movie that's coming up you know just how much cross promotion they want to do and it's definitely something that's starting to spread to other aspects of Hollywood. So, for example, Universal is making noises about making a continuity out of their classic 30s horror uh, mm. characters. Well, they tried that sort of with uh, Stephen Summer after The Mummy turned into such a runaway success, and then he botched it uh, with uh, Van Helsing, and they uh, dropped that into an oubliette. Are they going to try and build this out of the Dracula show that's coming on, or is that a different Dracula? Uh, it's a different one. They're... Um, they're tr- trying to... Uh, it's actually the Kurtzman and Ortsy, the guys behind Sleepy Hollow, who've been tasked with ah. redoing Van Helsing, which uh, I think is a, a tall task. That there might be... <laughs> the way to redo it is to not redo it. Or, yeah. I don't know. If you find someone who's today's Peter Cushing and have them do it, maybe that could possibly work. But I think the best way to redo Van Helsing is pretend it never happened. But um, <laughs> Benedict Cumberbatch is Van right. Helsing. Now, I'm not saying this is a, a good idea, uh, but it's certainly an idea, and it's an idea that's spreading, and so therefore is uh, one certainly of interest to those of us who produce their own uh, nerd uh, properties, albeit off in a little corner that Hollywood has yet to notice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, just on a structural basis, it, it will be interesting and, you know, about time to see how they work in, you know, the new Thor movie and how they start laying pipe for Ant-Man or whatever um, as they do it, and, you know... If there's going to be a sense of being shoehorned in where there's just going to be some scene where Coulson talks about the Guardians of the Galaxy and then moves on and we never hear about them again, or if they're going to actually attempt to present, you know, legitimate overlap in the way that they did with Thor's hammer uh, in the... Um, it was Iron Man 2, wasn't it? In, in, in the Iron Man 2 movie, yeah. Um, now, I have to say that as a moviegoer, I find that really annoying. <laughs> that <laughs> a lot of those movies do not stand on their own because of the effort to turn them into a continuity, you know, yes. that the Captain America movie would have been much better if it had ended in the 40s and th- that the uh, discovery of Captain America in the present day happened in the Avengers movie. Uh, it feels like a complete movie with another, you know, 10 minutes tacked on at the end. And if you're going to tack gratuitous things onto a movie, the last 10 minutes is not the point to do them. But the television format uh, should be much more amenable to that because mm-hmm. it is episodic and you can afford to be a little more uh, loosey-goosey, but it's all going to come down to you know how much they can strong-arm the uh, actors into doing it. So, you know, you you might see Thor show up, but I don't think we'll be seeing Tony Stark. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying that the, um, uh, you know, the, the Thor's hammer aspect of Iron Man 2 work, obviously the Captain America tie-in to Iron Man 2, slowed the, the the middle act of the movie down to unforgivable crawl. So it can be done well or badly, the same sort of, of allusion. And the trouble, of course, being that so far they haven't done anything particularly well in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And so I guess there's more reason to be cautious than excited about upcoming cross-promotion. Uh, so the lesson of this segment, then, is to uh, 
watch Sleepy Hollow and uh, Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. You all have to make your own decisions on. to Ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Stalwart annotator Jeremy French asks Ken and Robin, reading in Hamlet's hit points about the opening music of Dr. No, brought up the question of music in RPGs. Good? Bad? Or complicated? Robin, uh, do you consider music in RPGs to be good? Or bad? Or perhaps complicated? Just as we were talking about the use of continuity in the Marvel movies and now TV show, uh, music is... Uh, neither inherently good nor bad, but it can be used well, or it can be used uh, poorly, or it can have some pitfalls that you can fall into. So I do use music in my games. For example, right now, for the 13th Age game that I'm running, I have assembled a fight scenes playlist on RDO, which is one of those streaming music services and if you're on rdo it's a public playlist you can search for fight scenes and you'll find it and i put it on random and play it just during the fight scene so basically the music if i'm being sufficiently attentive uh starts with the initiative rolls and then ends at the end of the fight and so that sort of gives sort of a, a marker to the fight and i think it impels the players to uh, focus a little bit more and to hopefully be a little bit faster in coming up with their next actions when their turn comes up. And I think it becomes a little more achingly apparent when someone reaches for the rule book to look up what they can do when it becomes their turn and hopefully sort of trains people uh, to be uh, faster and also helps them to imagine in a crunchy bits game where there's a lot of interaction of die rolls and special abilities and stuff that the action is going on and reminding them to visualize what's going on as if they're seeing an action movie. And so that can be really useful. Another thing that uh, music can do really well is create a sense of uh, creeping unease in a horror game. So if you create a playtest of, or, sorry, if you create a playlist of horror music, you can have an interesting sort of emotional effect on the group. But one thing you have to be careful to do is not to have music going constantly or not have the music be a distraction. So for example, for the Dreamhounds of Paris campaign, I did create a playlist for that that had the avant-garde classical music of the period, including some of the uh, composers that they might have interacted with, and also the um, music of uh, 30s Parisian jazz, uh, including Josephine Baker and even uh, Kiki de Montparnasse, who's actually a character that you can play in the game. Some of her uh, cabaret music performances survive in audio form, but it was just too distracting for what was already a game of imagining a strange interaction between history and the dreamlands. And, there, and the particular, the classical music is a little too dissonant and uh, contrary to people's expectations that it's difficult to use this sort of background music. So I quickly backed away from using that. And anything with a sort of a dialogue scene to it, I think, works poorly with music behind it. My experience is, um, if anything, even more limited than yours. And it's not because I believe that music uh, in role-playing games is bad. Uh, Will Hindmarch uh, uses it tremendously well when he runs a game. He's always got, you know, a bunch of different music cues and he can pull them up, you know, almost seamlessly during play and they establish mood and they set expectations. They do everything that music is supposed to do. It's just that I have never done it because I grew up in the, you know, cassette tape era when such things were uh, less, uh, less uh, smooth and seamless than they are now. And so my GMing reflexes and muscles, I think, are not set up for that kind of, uh, of, of, of element to be brought onto the table. Are I don't, you telling me you're not like these kids today? I think I may not be like these kids today and in, not in, you know, sort of the good way in which I have, uh, read Thucydides, but in the bad way in which I don't know how to work their iPods. Um, and so the, uh, the notion that, uh, 
that you know using music to uh, to enhance the game session is the sort of thing that while I have seen it done and know it that it can be done in my own personal life I'm not eager to do it because I've already pretty darn good at running a game session and I would hesitate to have to go back down the learning curve and make my game sessions worse for however long it took me to get good at it as opposed to sort of leave it to people who have already got it done. Now that said, the existence of uh, James Semple's upcoming soundtrack for Knights Black Agents means that if I do run another Knights Black Agents game, it will be very difficult to resist using a theme song that was specifically written for the game that I wrote and uh, use uh, musical moments of, in that nature. And that might be something where I would say, I know I'm using this music, how can I uh, coordinate my game to the music rather than the other way around? And that might be an interesting challenge and something that would be fun to try and do. But that brings up another use for music or another way to use music as a tool, which is just as a transition from the talking and socializing and, and gabbing portion of the evening when you're just gathering together and possibly, you know, eating the lunch that you brought with you to the uh, game and transitioning to actually focusing in on the game. So I have on occasion used uh, theme music for the Trail of Cthulhu uh, series I ran. I uh, took a little snippet from Franz Waxman's Bride of Frankenstein theme to give you the proper sort of uh, 30s period horror. Uh, uh, speaking of James Semple, I used his special suppression forces theme for the Esoterrorist for the Esoterrorist uh, uh, games, and it gives sort of a nice little shift and helps people kind of again think of what they're doing as a episodic adventure, in this case horror adventure, and also to signal that it's time to transition from the one uh, mode of thinking and interacting and into the other. Uh, another thing it's it's useful for it's just a little sting for theme change music and uh that can be you know just even like a couple of notes like the chunk chunk in law and order that's very useful in gumshoe for example when you want to signal that they've gotten the core clue yeah the notion of using music as a explicit signal in that way i think would be easier certainly to get to do and um, you know anything that uh focuses the mind of of the players on the game is, is certainly worthwhile and worth doing, but again, the the value add of the music is not something that I am necessarily uh, convinced is worth trying to fumfer around at my own table. Um, I well, think I think the, the macro lesson that you're giving is just because there is a useful technique that some GMs use well doesn't mean that it works for you. Right. Uh, and you, in this case, is not just you can, but one, you know, the listener. That yeah. there are all kinds of techniques out there, but you don't. You shouldn't beat yourself up over the fact that some GMs make a lot of use of music and sound effects, and you don't. You can't possibly use every technique, and you need to be using the techniques that you are comfortable with and the ones that have a low mental overhead for you, uh, rather than things that, uh, you know, you do not have to stretch yourself in every possible direction in order to make use of every possible technique. That's true, although uh, it, it is uh, certainly the case that in a uh, scene where, you know, there is expected to be a musical component, like I ran a, a Nobilis game that was marked off by uh, the great um, uh, festival gathering of all the nobles uh, at one of the courts of the, of the, of the high uh, council um, every, uh, every quarter of the year, so on Halloween and on Lammas and on Beltane and so forth, and the notion that I could have with a bit of work, created uh, music that would have been the music playing at these gatherings and then segued into the conversational part or had the music there as the political maneuvering is going on to emphasize the sort of dance-like quality of, um, uh, of that sort of interaction might have been a, a, a road worth traveling. And again, if you decide ahead of time that you're going to have music, Maybe that's the way to do it is to say, where is there, where is there a natural point for a musical or musically enhanced scene? Where, where does source music make sense? Uh, in, in the sense of if we're having our, our uh, vampire hunt go into a, a nightclub where there's a lot of uh, techno going, maybe I should play some techno and get everyone's blood pumping and get them ready to, uh, empty, uh, fully automatic clips at uh, vampire somewhere. And if you do subscribe to a streaming music service and have a laptop or iPad and little set of mini speakers at the table, you can do things on the fly if that's something you're comfortable with. So I have to confess that 
I did something a little naughty uh, in last week's game that we reached the inevitable point where the 13th age characters got a little money and were in a city, and so they wanted to go shopping. And uh, as a GM, my interest in shopping uh, is roughly equivalent to the interest of the player who is most bored with shopping. So uh, in order to uh, hurry along the uh, players who are most interested in detailed shopping, I admit that I... Uh, found uh, on the fly the uh, Jeopardy thinking music and played it on a loop <laughs> until they were done. Uh, I'm not sure I recommend that, but... I thought I thought this was going to be the Sex in the City theme that you had played as an ironic commentary. So anyway, I think that's a, a reasonably good roundup of our uh, use of uh, music in games. And uh, so I guess I would just go back to what we said at the top, which is that it is uh, a useful tool if it is a tool that you are uh, comfortable with and uh, alert to the, the pitfalls. Well, one of the pitfalls, I guess I should say before we move on, is that uh, sometimes a chunk of music that you've selected may have a break in it that's actually quite different than the mood that you're looking for. So I've been uh, sort of hosed on occasion by having something in my horror mix from an Italian giallo movie that suddenly turned into sort of jaunty Hammond organ uh, pop in the middle of it, or, you know, sometimes in a fight scene, there'll be like a, a little idyllic break before the characters go over the rise and enter the battle. And so you want to be careful that the tracks that you're playing meet all of the requirements that you need and that you tr trim things from session to session if you discover that uh, there's a track in there that doesn't fit. In a way, having music at the table is like having another player at the table, and you need to be able to respond creatively and in the moment to their moods just like you have to to other players although and I unlike guess, players uh, they have a mute button yeah though well, that's um that's the advantage and they, they can be as distracting as the most distracting of players if they decide to uh get crosswise to your game plan well uh speaking of game plans it's time that we moved on to our final segment Creaking of the stairs as we round the corner and see the glowering portrait of Madame Blavatsky looking down at us as we pass the pentacle painted in a mysterious red substance alerts us to the fact that we're once more in the company of the consulting occultist. And this week the consulting occultist is going to talk about someone on the borderline of the uh, occult uh, and the other borderline would be perhaps boring world philosophy, uh, but it's someone who is mentioned a lot in the history of the cultural ferment that we saw in 19th century America, which was uh, very alert to different uh, supernatural and metaphysical possibilities, and that would be uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. So, Ken, can you uh, start by giving us the 101 on who uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson was. Well, this is this may not be the uh, episode that uh, Emersonian devotees want to listen to, because as far as I have experienced, and I, like most American uh, high school students, ha was forced to read Emerson uh, for whatever mysterious reason they forced you to read Emerson. And everything then and since has convinced me that Ralph Waldo Emerson is essentially the Deepak Chopra of 19th century American. He is, he is a purveyor of happy-sounding bilge in the sort of sententious format that a busy and nervous bourgeoisie can take to their heart to convince themselves that they are spiritual or elevated. Um, he is uh, considerably less valuable than his uh, friend and uh, occasion, occasional fellow transcendentalist, Thoreau, for example, whose work, while annoying in many ways, did at least provide a basis for Gandhian nonviolent action and then for our own civil rights movement. And so if you have to read a transcendentalist, read Thoreau, because at least eventually there's a payoff to that. Whereas um, uh, Emerson is just bibble babbling on endlessly, recycling things uh, from better authors that are worthwhile and then inserting his own mush. Uh, about the oversoul or about the cosmic bubble nature of the universe. So, so if you were to briefly uh, role play uh, <laughs> someone who liked Emerson and could explain <laughs> why he was so influential, uh, what would his supporters say about transcendentalism? I, I think that what his supporters would say about transcendentalism is are, are two things. First, that Emerson is really the first homegrown example of an American 
philosopher, and that he is the first American philosopher who considered being an American as important as anything else about his philosophy, that he was consciously trying to create a new way to talk about the experience of life in a new country and in the new world, and that that is one of his great contributions. He gave a, a lecture at Harvard uh, that, that called for an, an American literature as opposed to endless imitations of European literature that apparently had a, a big effect on um, uh, the surrounding uh, folks. And then I think that a, a devoted transcendentalist, bless their sweet little eyes, would say that uh, transcendentalism is just one of many metaphysical uh, ways to the fundamental understanding that there is more to life than getting and spending, to, uh, in, in, to invoke Wordsworth, and the sort of material concerns that are, you know, uh, so obviously predominant because so obviously successful in the United States, and that any attempt to push back against the Yankee know-how and capitalist cultures that built America is worthwhile just as sort of a metaphysical corrective to our overtly physical universe that, that we live in and, uh, and profit from. So uh, since this is the consulting occultist and not the consulting philosopher, uh, what were the metaphysical or occult uh, elements of his belief system? The metaphysical elements of transcendentalism are basically a sort of denatured Gnosticism or denatured Platonism, the notion that there is a higher purity that must be found outside uh, society. Um, it, as opposed to straight Gnosticism, it can be found in communion with nature, as opposed to in communion with um, uh, a pure uh, oversoul or a pure extraterrestrial, uh, not in the sense of alien beings, but in the sense of not material uh, entity. And it holds that, that every man has within him the spark of divinity uh, that uh, at some level is indistinguishable from the uh, the cosmic all that uh, that permeates everything. So it, it's sort of milk and water Gnosticism or milk and water Platonism, depending on exactly what direction you go with it, with a strong uh, component, however, of nature worship, which uh, obviously those two trends, since they were invented in horrible deserts as opposed to awesome New England, had uh, going for them. And so in a world, uh, an, an imaginary version of history, an alternate history, a sleepy hollow history, if you will, <laughs> if you will, um, where metaphysical beliefs have measurable impacts on the world, how would the metaphysics of transcendentalism manifest themselves uh, in a fictional universe? I think that in a uh, sort of a, a transcend, if if uh, if Ichabod Crane has to track down a transcendental villain or um, a, a transcendental mage shows up to uh, to deliver exposition, the, uh, the the power is going to basically be a sort of uh, annoying Jedi mastery type thing. Most American mysticism sort of points in that same sort of direction. Um, and George Lucas is, is in many ways not particularly different from Ralph Waldo Emerson. Uh, and the, uh, the belief that uh, sort of once you have mastered the self, right, you are capable of exerting uh, invisible power or that you're capable of operating in tune with the metaphysical flow of the cosmos. So you, you, know, you can walk between the raindrops or you could always show up when you're needed. Sort of a phantom strangery type power, I guess, would be the... Um, the, the transcendentalist uh, self-image or the way that you'd want to point to a, you know, watch, look out, boys, he's got the power of transcendentalism type uh, uh, bad guy. Well, in fact, I guess what you're talking about is something that's had a huge impact on Hollywood and, and genre, and you see all the time to the point where it's a huge cliche, where uh, so many things, including Star Wars, including uh, the most recent episode of Sleepy Hollow yet again, <laughs> is about you've got to have faith. And that's where it stops, right? That you just mm -hmm. believe, believing in something, having faith in something that isn't real and isn't measurable is again and again portrayed as a virtue unto in itself and the virtue that you need to overcome something. Now, in the Sleepy Hollow episode, I, I did give them points for then saying, but you know, faith won't get you everywhere. <laughs> so I guess faith only really mattered for that one episode. But these sort of invocations of faith in nothing in particular or faith in the idea of faith itself run through pop culture hugely. I guess there, it, uh, there's an element of that in the matrix. Uh, you know, it's not too far away. It's only a few degrees away from the power of love miraculously saving you and having a, a metaphysical impact. So that's certainly, uh, 
a an example of something where Emersonian thought has suffused uh, pop culture and genre culture. And that's and that's one of the things that he is given credit for. I think by historians of the occult is that he himself his 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 occult beliefs like all of the rest of his beliefs are such a mishmash that there's no really uh you know there's no real utility to them but what he does because he's such an indefatigable publisher of this nonsensical dribble is that he sort of prepares the ground amongst the american intelligentsia and amongst the american uh, like i say uh nervous bourgeoisie for things like theosophy that do bring a a cast of characters of of uh Atlanteans and Lemurians and space masters and and Nordic aliens and whatnot and anyone who shows up to say you must believe in yourself or um uh, there is no uh, try there is only do or any of the other sort of Emersonian mantras the the fact is that he because he was interested in hermitism he was interested in gnosticism he was interested in a lot of uh, the, the sort of same things that were creating the occult revival in, in France and in England in the 1840s and 1850s. He makes it possible for the, these occultists to have an audience that says, oh, I remember reading something about that, either in Emerson or in some popularization of Emerson, and to be more open to it. And I think when you trace uh, uh, George Lucas back to, to, to Ralph Waldo Emerson, or you trace the whole American um, uh, pop culture, just have faith in faith, you're talking, uh, you're, you're seeing sort of a heterodyning of Emersonian transcendentalism, which is basically, in addition to being a denatured Gnosticism, it's also a denatured Protestantism, right? The notion that uh, salvation uh, is only possible by faith in God, but that once you have faith in God, everything is possible. If you take the in God part out of that equation, as, as Emerson uh, tended to do every now and again, uh, you get uh, the force. You get... Um, uh, that sort of new age feel good. One hesitates to say philosophy, but belief structure and and American exceptionalism. You get the right. you know if you just believe in yourself and in this crazy plan, everything mm -hmm. is going to work out. And uh, all you got to do is believe, and you see that sort of you know magical thinking in American politics to this day, and an extent that it is not in other politics of other Western democracies. And there's that. That you very specifically see, you know, a lot of mythic invocations in political rhetoric, including, you know, the shining city on the hill and the idea that uh, the idea of manifest destiny, uh, something mm -hmm. that uh, rings with metaphorical imports. So there, it's not an accident that uh, Hollywood, as the popularizer of the American way of thinking, uh, latches onto this. And also it's something that, you know, is easy to do with kind of lazy storytelling because you can have the solution be just believe in yourself and try harder and then mm -hmm. the character believes in himself and, and tries harder. So in a way, although you don't have a lot of, you know, respect for the mishmash, it's uh, had an incredible power and influence. Yeah, no, I, I, there are plenty of things that I have no respect for that had incredible power and influence, Robin. I mean, <laughs> if, if we ever um, uh, can find some uh, occult uh, reason to, to bring Marx into the uh, consulting occultists, I, I, will, I will show you the, uh, the level of respect I can have for something um, that is still a mishmash. Uh, the, and, um, and it's really unfair to Marx to uh, bring him up in, this, in the context of Emerson because uh, Marx at least believed that there would be math at some point. Um, <laughs> Emerson is also, I, th I think, more interesting because of the people that surround him. I, I mentioned Thoreau before, but uh, Bronson Alcott, for example, was an early transcendentalist in uh, Emerson's circle, as was obviously Louisa May Alcott, uh, William Ellery Channing, uh, Walt Whitman, you know, who was you know, every bit as great an American poet as Emerson attempted to summon up by his Harvard lecture and is well worth uh, one study. Emily Dickinson, another uh, great and important uh, transcendentalist. But I think it's more interesting to know that both Edgar Allan Poe and Nathaniel Hawthorne thought that it was bunk and uh, made fun of it. And um, uh, that uh, Emerson's uh, often uh, lecture partner on the Chautauqua circuit was P.T. Barnum, who I believe whose philosophy is perhaps a little bit more well, it's more reliable, let's say, than transcendentalism, certainly. It even... was still about having a faith in yourself, though. <laughs> it, it is also about having faith in yourself, but there are there are certain important caveats and extensions that yes. make it a, a, a plan for living in a way that transcendentalism is not. And a uh, lack of faith in the intelligence of those you exploit. <laughs> well, like Marx, it actually um, uh, bears some, rea some, <laughs> some relationship to the actual um, uh, facts on the ground. So I'm uh, seeing an, an American Druids campaign where... 
uh, Emerson and Alcott and uh, Thoreau and Whitman are all uh, teaming up to uh, protect the bubble of American uh, optimism and uh, uh, faith in faith from the uh, darker forces represented by uh, Poe and uh, Hawthorne. Yeah, there you could certainly have a, a Druid down to the notion that the Druid uh, magics worked uh, poetically, right? The, the old Robert Graves' white goddess, while we're on the topic of nonsense, um, <laughs> belief that... Uh, that uh, the, these uh, these poetic statements also contain cabalistic meaning at a fundamental, a deep level. Certainly, if you've got um, uh, you know Walt Whitman and uh, William Ellery Channing out there, um, and uh, uh, to one extent or another, Longfellow, uh, his brother was a big transcendentalist. I don't know that he specifically was was a giant one, but I'm sure that he'd be happy to go out and uh, fight monsters for the American Druid cycle. Or Emily Dickinson. Uh, penning up some uh, Lovecraftian witch in her attic, and that's why she has to stay up there the whole time. Uh, you you have all kinds of possibilities with that, and I think it would be fun uh, if you have a poetically minded player or players to try that out uh, for a change and make Emerson sort of the uh, <laughs> uh, Obi Wan Kenobi wandering around in a bathrobe type figure, while the other guys out, are out there, you know, getting it done. So I guess I, you know, in, in, in summary, I wouldn't say that Emerson is an occultist, but he is convenient to a lot of things that you might want to do with the occult. He's not a spiritualist, but he's sending people out to upstate New York to start weird communes, which can give us a uh, Charlie Manson or a Ray Ellians type vibe if we want. He's not a uh, druid. He's not a poet, but he knows a bunch of really awesome poets who can use their electrical energy to create magical power. So he's not he doesn't really belong center stage of your game, but he's the sort of guy who you can always rely on to spread a thin film of mystic impenetrability over the surroundings, if that's the sort of thing you need. And, you know, I think that may be the sort of thing that you need every now and again. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Engine Publishing. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Help keep this Gollumoffrey going by clicking the Donate button at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Exploit our reach by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>